Good morning, everyone. Good to be here again. Good to have one more opportunity to come together as the Lord's people and praise Him, to pray to Him and to come before His Word as we uh, it is preached now. So please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6 as you do so. Let me just give you kind of a summary of where we were, were leading up to this point. Last week we were in this chapter... We were looking at what happened when Jesus returned one final time to his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, The place that he'd grown up in, the place where his family lived, the place where his friends lived, the place where he worked as a carpenter under his stepfather Joseph. And it was a mercy mission of Jesus to go back to Nazareth. He'd previously gone back uh, another time after commencing his public ministry, but they rejected him. And as the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. But with great compassion, he goes again once more. And sadly, once more, he's rejected by the people. And by those who had known him the longest, by those who supposedly knew him the best. But that's the power of unbelief, isn't it? The people of Nazareth had set themselves against Jesus. So that despite witnessing the authoritative power of his words and his works, they come up with all sorts of excuses to resist the truth. And it shows us the necessity of inward grace to regenerate hearts of stone to make them hearts of flesh, to be open to responding to Christ in repentance and faith. Those of us who've been united to Christ Uh, recognize that it's only by God's merciful action towards us that we've been able to turn to Christ. And this should stir us, stir within us a deep desire to see other lost souls who are still stuck in unbelief, to see them receive the compassionate touch of the Lord Almighty, that they too might be drawn to faith in Jesus, the Saviour of the world. Yet by... Jesus' actions in leaving Nazareth and turning to the other villages to preach the word, we also recognise the need for discernment, to know that when we've clearly presented the gospel and it has been rejected, uh, that we are to seek other opportunities to go about preaching the word. In Matthew chapter 9, uh, we're given more details about Jesus preaching at this moment. And in Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38, we're told this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into his harvest. Well, here is clear testimony from our Lord that we are commanded to pray. Pray that the gospel would go forth into the world through faithful men and women, both young and old. Believers participate in calling God to send our workers to fulfil his plans but also to be the workers that he fulfills his plans through. It's often said that if God has elected 
before time all those who would come to faith, then why is there any need for evangelism? Have you ever had someone question that to you? You might have asked that question yourself. Why, why, if there is the doctrine of election, why any need for evangelism? But the same Jesus who declared elsewhere that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, which is a crystal clear affirmation of the doctrine of election, well, this same Jesus gives the command here in Matthew 9 for his disciples to pray. Pray that God would raise up his people to go forth and preach the word. It's true that the Spirit must cause a sinner to be born again, that they might be able to turn to Christ. But the Spirit does so by means of the word that he has inspired. It's at this point then that Jesus enables that mission to begin through the sending out of the 12 apostles. Now, on the foyer, uh, on the table, I've just uh, printed out a chronology of the the calling of the apostles, the various callings that Jesus uh, speaks to them throughout the Gospels. And uh, if you want to pick up a copy of that, it's just a brief chronological outline and just helps you get a a framework um, for Jesus' interactions with his apostles in the early parts of the Gospel. But uh, the main section in Mark chapter 3, which we've already seen, Jesus had first set apart these 12 men out of the larger group of disciples who were following him. Mark 3 verse 14, we read, And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So this event was where he set them apart where he began purposefully training them and preparing them. As we now come to chapter 6, their training is about to get very hands-on as he sends them out to Galilee by themselves. We find a parallel account uh, in Luke chapter 9 and an extended account throughout the whole of Matthew chapter 10. And we'll bounce off of these as we work through this this morning. So with your Bibles open to Mark 6... We'll read through verses 7 to 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. While this passage is directly teaching us about this first solo mission of the apostles, there are tremendous lessons that we can gain from it as we seek to be faithful disciples of Christ in the 21st century. The title of this morning's sermon is The Twelve Delegates from the Lord. And this passage begins in verse 7 where we see that their authority is established. Amid Jesus' preaching and performing miracles in Galilee, Moving out from the town of Nazareth, 
We read that he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now Mark refers to them here as the twelve, but they were each given the title of apostle. And so here's a definition of an apostle. One chosen and sent with a special commission as the fully authorised representative of the sender. An apostle is not simply a messenger, but rather a delegate who has been entrusted with a mission and has been given the full authority to carry out that mission by the one sending him. Of the 12 apostles that Jesus chose, Judas was eventually replaced by Matthias and then we read later on the apostle Paul was also chosen. Only these men were considered apostles of Christ. So when Jesus called the initial 12 in Mark chapter 6, we're told that he began to send them out two by two. And from this it seems that there was a a staggered sending. It it didn't happen uh, all at once, but given the urgency of how Jesus speaks in this passage, it probably wasn't too long of a gap. And if you read Matthew's account, you can also see which men were paired together. Matthew lays that out very clearly for us. And no doubt the partnering was helpful for a number of reasons. Uh, The the two uh, men could provide moral support and encouragement to each other. Uh, They could confirm with each other the the details of the gospel message. It would also be safer for them as they travelled, both from bandits and wild animals. Moreover, it would meet that Old Testament requirement that a matter should be decided upon by at least two witnesses. Now, Mark doesn't initially tell us much about what Jesus told the apostles to do, simply that he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. But given what we read in Mark 3, and given what we've read in the beginning of Mark 6, where we read about Jesus' actions in going to the synagogue of Nazareth and and teaching, which would be teaching about the gospel of the kingdom, like he taught everywhere, then we would certainly expect that to be the central or central to the mission of the apostles. Indeed, when we look down to verses 12 to 13, we see exactly that. Uh, Mark writes there, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so preaching, casting out demons and healing, this is what they were called to do. It was a spoken word ministry, that was validated by a supernatural works ministry. In Matthew 10, verses 5 to 8, we're given even more details about what they were to do. We read, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So, number one, they went out and taught exactly what Jesus had been teaching. They preached everywhere they went about the need for people to repent of their sins and the need for trusting in Jesus as the Saviour. Now, there are often great debates about what the focus of the church should be. But how do we get into these discussions, really? And the answer is that 
we allow ourselves to stray from what the scriptures actually tell us. And what should be front and center in the church? Well, you look at what Jesus did and then what Jesus commissioned the apostles to do. A commission they began here but is illustrated dramatically in the pages of the book of Acts. They were on about calling people to repent of their sin and placing their faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. They were on about the gospel. That's not complicated, is it? In fact, that's the great commission that Jesus gave to the apostles before his ascension, commission that has been passed on to the church throughout the centuries, commission that every member of Christ's church is included in. So the apostles were authorised to preach the gospel. And number two, the apostles were given authority to perform miraculous works as confirmation that the message they were bringing was true. The writer of Hebrews highlights the miraculous powers of Christ and, and how he bestowed those abilities on his apostles. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says this, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So do you hear what the writer is saying? That the miracles confirmed the message. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, the Apostle Paul pleads with the church not to listen to the super apostles, those false apostles who had been leading the church astray. He calls them rather to turn back to the gospel that Paul preached because it was God's gospel and it was affirmed by the miraculous things Paul did. So we read, The signs of a true apostle, Paul says, were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so here's why I think that the miraculous gifts, the sign gifts, came to an end after the writing of the New Testament. And those gifts would include things like prophecy, which is the ability to speak direct new revelation from God. Or speaking in tongues, which is the ability to speak in a, no, a known human language, previously unknown to the speaker. And of course, the ability to miraculously heal and to cast out demons. The miracles were given for a specific purpose. They were given to validate the message. But now we have the message, a message that has been attested by the miraculous. And as Peter writes in his second letter, in the 66 books of the Bible, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, while as believers we can't take the miraculous ministry of the apostles as something that we're to follow, nevertheless, the attitude behind it certainly is. The message of the gospel could have been validated by any number of miraculous means. But the heart of God is seen in his desire to end suffering. So it's important that our preaching on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ is demonstrated vividly in our practice 
of the mercy of God. And what that looks like will be different in one church to another, depending on the area that God has placed those believers within. Now, our practice of mercy should never eclipse our preaching. It's not evangelism if the gospel isn't spoken. But just the same, as we proclaim the good news of Jesus, the repentance of sin, the forgiveness of sin found in him alone, let us think hard about how we demonstrate the love of Christ that we've come to know for ourselves. Before the apostles of Christ, they were given that authority to perform those acts of mercy in miraculous ways because it was necessary to confirm the message of the gospel. So the apostles' authority was first established. Moving forward in the passage, in verses 8 to 9, we then see that their assurance is exercised. And by that I mean that Jesus was helping them understand that their confidence must be in the Lord. In their first mission, their assurance, their confidence in God's provision was stretched and tested. It was exercised. After Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension, the apostles were going to be the leaders of the church. And so the master eases his students into that future task by giving them an opportunity to depend fully on God. So verses 8 to 9 we read, He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. That have confidence that God will provide for them. It's a training exercise for them, an opportunity to trust in the Lord's provision. Now, firstly, people make much of the variation between what Mark records and what Matthew and Luke record. Just to take Matthew's account, he records Jesus as saying in Matthew 10, verses 9 to 10, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the labourer deserves his food. Now, is there a contradiction here when Mark says that Jesus told the apostles they could take a staff, but Matthew and Luke say that Jesus told the apostles they weren't to take a staff at all? Is there a contradiction? No. There is no contradiction here. You'll note first that Mark is not quoting Jesus, but giving a summary of what Jesus said. You'll note secondly that Jesus' actual words recorded in Matthew's account are that the apostles are not to acquire a staff, whereas Mark simply says they were told they could take a staff. And the difference rests in the fact that Jesus was sending them out straight away with whatever they had in their possession at the time. Those who already had a staff with them could take it along. Those who didn't could not go and find one. They could not go and acquire one for the journey. And the same goes for the sandals. They weren't allowed to go and purchase another pair of sandals in preparation for the mission. They were only allowed to take the pair they had on. And so again, we can have confidence 
in the truthfulness and trustworthiness of Scripture. What we see here is another link back to the Exodus, where Moses instructed the people about the Passover meal they were to eat on the eve of the tenth plague. Exodus 12 verse 11 says, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. And so it highlights the nature of the Apostles' mission as being part of a new and greater exodus. And it highlights the urgency of the mission. And the urgency also means there is a real felt need to depend upon God. This is not something Jesus let them plan and prepare for. It was an opportunity to strengthen their faith in the Lord and recognise that he is faithful. And sending out the apostles like this, Jesus was giving them a chance to live out what he preached in the Sermon on the Mount. These words from Matthew 6. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, we need to be careful to see the words of Mark 6 in the specific context of the apostles' first mission and as an exercise of their faith. Because later in Luke chapter 22, Jesus said this to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And so what happened in Mark 6 was a specific teaching moment for the apostles. It's not a prescription for future disciples like you and me to purposefully go out unprepared. However, it is a reminder of the need to trust the Lord. A reminder of our utter dependence upon him. Because even in our preparation for ministry, we can never think that we have full control over what will happen. We are to be faithful witnesses. But faithful witnesses depend upon the Lord. So, their assurance is exercised. Moving on to verses 10 and 11, we then see that their approach is explained. And there's two aspects here. Look firstly at verse 10. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. As the apostles went throughout the region of Galilee preaching and healing, our Lord extended a warning to them. When they came into a new area, they were to stay wherever they were initially offered hospitality until such time as they discerned it was necessary to move to the next village and start ministering there. And why was that important? Well, because the miraculous works they would be performing was going to drum up a lot of attention and there would surely be offers coming to them of better places to stay in every village. Jesus wanted them to be content with whatever was provided for them. If the poorest person in town offered them a place to stay, 
They were not to move on from that house if someone richer gave them an offer to stay with them. They weren't to take upgrades if they were offered. See, the apostles were not meant to be peddlers of the word. They were not to be ministering for their own personal gain. And this is just as true for any believer today. This command of the apostles reminds us of the importance of contentment in the Lord and in what he provides. But it also serves as a reminder to value, to absolutely value fellow believers who seek to offer their gifts in whatever way they can. The apostles would honour those who opened their houses to them. And we should always be quick to honour those in Christ who in faithfully using the gifts God has given them, have been a blessing to us. And so that was Jesus' instruction if the apostles were welcomed. But what was their approach to be if they were not welcomed? And that's the second aspect Jesus explains in verse 11, where he says this, And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And what Jesus outlines here is the same response that he demonstrated with the people of Nazareth. He'd come to offer them mercy, but they refused, and so he moved on. I mentioned last week that this was Jesus putting into practice his teaching again from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, which is a section warning about hypocritical judging Jesus finishes by saying that discernment is still extremely important hypocritical judging is very bad but discernment is vital not all judgment is bad so in Matthew 7 verse 6 he says do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you For the apostles, uh, they were to exercise discernment in determining whether their efforts at preaching and healing were being well received. If they had been clear and people were refusing to listen and respond in repentance and faith, sorry, if, if they had been clear and the people were refusing to respond in repentance and faith, then they were to move on to other villages where the gospel might be received. They weren't to continue their efforts in a village that at that precise moment uh, remained hardened to the gospel. And the apostles were commanded to respond to their rejection by shaking off the dust of their feet as a testimony against that village. It was a sign of judgment. If a Jew had to walk across Gentile territory, then the moment they reached Jewish territory once more, they would shake the dust off their feet as a sign of contempt at the uncleanness that they had just endured. And well, so it was for the apostles. In this mission, Matthew records for us that the apostles were told only to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. For those who rejected the apostles... The apostles were to treat them as if they were Gentiles. It was a sign of judgment because the apostles were authorised delegates for Jesus. And in rejecting the apostles, they were rejecting Jesus himself. This becomes an important lesson for us today in our own efforts at evangelism. 
If it becomes clear that people are simply not open to hearing the gospel, then we're to expend our efforts in proclaiming the gospel elsewhere. Yes, we should still pray, be diligent in prayer for those people. Pray that God would enable further opportunities to arise. But for that moment, it's a mark of wisdom for us to entrust them to God and to seek other opportunities to speak about Jesus elsewhere. So, the Apostles' approach is explained. And that brings us to the conclusion of the passage in verses 12 to 13, where we see that their achievement is emphasised. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Once again, we see that it was a preaching mission and the message they preached was confirmed by the power they wielded. Unlike the response that Jesus experienced in Nazareth, the apostles' mission here is met with success. For many demons were cast out and many were healed of their sicknesses. Of course, this excitement needs to be tempered by what we'll look at next time when we read about the demise of John the Baptist. It's quite tempting to only think of ministry as being successful when good things are happening. But that's to have the almost idolatrous view that we get to decide what is good for God's plans. We are to be faithful in preaching the gospel and we are to trust God with the results. Whether that brings the glorious response and the salvation of sinners or whether that only serves to harden hearts and leads to our own persecution, God is leading all things towards his sovereign purposes. We are called to do what he calls us to do and trust him with the results. Now, there are Several important things to draw out from the achievement of the apostles here. And the first thing is clearly their obedience. They faithfully did what the Lord commanded them. And there will be several times during uh, their life and ministry with Jesus where the apostles failed. Those moments, those failures serve as a great encouragement for us in the times that we stumble uh, to know that God still worked through them And he will still work through us. But right here we see a great example of faithfulness. And it should spur us on to be faithful in the things that God has revealed to us through his word that he's calling us to do. Secondly, it's interesting that the apostles anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now in the first century oils were used for medicinal purposes For instance, in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan found in Luke chapter 10, Jesus said that the Samaritan went to the beaten man and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. But clearly, rubbing on some oil is not going to do anything for those suffering from the kinds of things Jesus gave the apostles the authority to heal, like cleansing lepers and raising the dead. A bit of oil is not going to help. We don't hear of the apostles doing this kind of thing again in their ministry, so it's hard to be dogmatic as to what the purpose of the anointing was for. But at this stage, I think the best explanations are that it symbolised the health and well-being that was soon to take place. And moreover, 
that it was a way of expressing further dependence upon God. The oil being a symbol to all, that the apostles were simply conduits for God's power, that they were not taking any credit for themselves. A third aspect that stands out in this verse is the question of demonic presence today. Now clearly there is a distinction between demon and disease in this passage. But we might ask the question, can people still be possessed today? Well, if you've repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, then no, because at that moment of your conversion, the Holy Spirit took up residence in your life. He is dwelling within you now, and so no unholy spirit can share that space. Now, Satan may impact our lives. Think of Job, for instance, but he cannot take up residence within us. For non-Christians, however, yes, being possessed by a demon, that's just as much a possibility now as it was in Jesus' day. But here's a question for believers. How would we know that about someone? We can't. Throughout the New Testament, those possessed could manifest the same problems as those who just had a physical illness. Demons made people blind just as much as sickness did. And so it's completely presumptuous of us to try and determine what's going on in someone else. Furthermore, there's no command in any of the letters of the New Testament that says believers are to cast out demons. It just isn't. We might ask why. Because... Casting out demons was a miraculous work that confirmed the messenger and his message. Something we don't need anymore since we have the sufficient word of the Bible. And while the New Testament does affirm that we are in a spiritual battle, God has also revealed what we are to do about it. In Ephesians 6, for instance, we are told to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. And so what's our battle plan as believers? Prayer and preaching. Those are our tools for battle. And that makes things very easy, right? That's pretty simple to remember. Pray and preach. Pray and preach. Pray and preach. And that's the call for every believer. That's how we continue in the battle that the apostles first engaged in. And there's one more aspect in this passage worth considering. Did you notice that every member of the 12 was given Christ's authority to preach and perform miracles? And have you considered for a moment that this also included the man who would betray Jesus? That's right, Judas. Unregenerate Judas also exhibited Christ's power during this mission. Now you ask, how on earth could that be? How could a non-believer do that? Now, interestingly, there are two instances in the scripture where this happened. In the Old Testament, we have the example of the pagan prophet Balaam, whom God spoke through to bless the Israelites when the king of Moab had hired Balaam to, to prophesy against the Israelites. We find that in Numbers chapter 22 to 24. And then in the New Testament, there's the example of Caiaphas, the high priest, who conspired to have Jesus killed. In John chapter 11, 
We're told that he made a prophecy that it would be better for one man to die for the people. John tells us in verse 51 that he did not say this of his own accord. That prophecy was about Jesus, yet while Caiaphas had his own purposes, so did God. Now only God can do true miracles. Satan and his minions, while powerful, cannot do what God can do. If they could then how could anything that God has revealed be authenticated as true? For instance, if Satan could raise people from the dead, then we would not know that we could trust the words of Christ and his apostles as being from God. How could we? Now, the best Satan can do is elaborate manipulation, not miracle. But God's work through Judas and these other two men from Scripture was genuine. And the question is, why would God do so? A simplest answer I can think of is to fulfill his sovereign purposes. God worked through Balaam to demonstrate his protection over Israel from the Moabites. He worked through Caiaphas to proclaim the truth of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. He worked through Judas to enable the scriptures to be fulfilled that one closest to Jesus would betray him. And so God's work through these men shows his absolute sovereignty over all things. But these three examples, and especially that of Judas, should give us even more pause for thought. All these three men truly did the mighty works of God, but all these three men were unregenerate, unrepentant and when they died they went straight to hell and it recalls jesus warning in the sermon on the mount where he declared in chapter 7 of matthew's gospel on that day many will say to me lord lord did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then i'll declare to them i never knew you Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now Judas could legitimately say he had done mighty works in Jesus' name, but that meant absolutely nothing because he was unrepentant and unfaithful to Christ. And that should be a sober warning to all of us. What matters most is knowing Jesus and being known by him. The most important thing in life is responding to the truth of the gospel. Now, I'm sure you've met many people who are deeply involved in the work of the church, have been for many years in various ways, but there's something missing. And that something is an understanding of the gospel. They're busy doing things, but they never truly come to the end of themselves, never repent of their sin, never submit themselves under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The achievement of the apostles is emphasised in these final verses. It's a great display of faithfulness, something that should spur us on. But we should not miss the tragedy cached in its midst. The tragedy of Judas, who was a part of it all, and yet missed out on what it was really all about. When we start looking at any passage of Scripture more closely we quickly realise it contains a lot more than we may first have thought. And today's passage is no exception. 
And in drawing to a close, let me just tie a few aspects together that have been raised through our study of Mark chapter 5 and Mark chapter 6. past couple of weeks, we've spoken a lot about miracles. How could we not? They're on every page. But let me give you a framework to think about that. When God implemented his eternal plans to make a people for himself, it began with the miracle of creation out of nothing in six 24-hour days. But while he rested from his work of creating after the climax of the sixth day, he was nevertheless imminently involved in sustaining his creation. This he has done through ordinary providence, which we might define as his constant care for his creation, his active involvement within every aspect of his creation, and his sovereign direction to bring history to his appointed end. Now, interestingly, when we look at Matthew's extended record of what Jesus said to his apostles before sending them out, we read one of the most significant passages in Scripture concerning God's providence. And here it is, Matthew 10, verses 28 to 31. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your, of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so we can know that nothing happens apart from the will of God. Nothing. And this is given by Jesus to reassure the apostles of God's providential care of his creation. And what an amazing truth that is for us to always remember as well. And so God normally sustains his creation through ordinary providence. But he is by no means limited to this. And at times he exercises his care in the form of extraordinary providence. Or what we might refer to as miracles. And here's a definition from last week again. A divine miracle is a mighty work performed directly by God or through an authorised agent that supersedes God's ordinary care of his creation in such a manner that it draws wonder from onlookers and serves as a clear sign of God's immediate action. Now, throughout the history of Israel, God demonstrated his extraordinary power at various times, most especially in the eras of Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, and then to an exponentially greater extent in the life and ministry of Jesus and his apostles. Now, in all of these instances, miracles serve to validate the messenger and the message. And what task did Jesus eventually bestow upon the apostles? To write down the revelation of Jesus Christ for future generations. And we now have that revelation, that perfect revelation as the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. And since it is a final and sufficient revelation, since it tells us everything we need to know about salvation and sanctification and service under God, we have no further need of miracles. Their purpose has passed. We have the confirmed revelation from God in our hands. Now, God 
is still caring for and leading this world through his ordinary providence. And sometimes we know that can be quite remarkable indeed. And we should give God praise every day. I mean, especially when we we look back on situations and we see wonderful answers to prayer or incredible situations unfold that those with unbelieving hearts may deny, but those in Christ have just one more reason to give glory to God. With all that in mind, we look at the work of the 12 delegates of the Lord and recognise that while the miraculous nature of their work was confined to the first century, those miracles affirmed the gospel they preached, which is the same gospel that we have received and the same gospel that we are called to preach as well. And so we open with Jesus' words from Matthew 9 when he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the labourers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into his harvest. May we faithfully lift up that prayer. May we faithfully answer that call. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the words of Scripture we have a true message. A message we know to be true because it has been confirmed by extraordinary workings of your power. Father, we also recognise, as we talked about this morning, that you could have used any type of miracle to confirm the message that was being preached, the good news of Jesus. But you chose to work in ways that relieved suffering. Father, we thank you for your heart that is seen in this. Father, work within us a soft heart for those who are still lost, who still do not know Christ. We pray for them. We pray that you would open their hearts to receive the good news of Christ. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in prayer, but also preaching, knowing that the message we preach is trustworthy. It has been confirmed by your power. And we can have absolute confidence that you will save your people through this good news. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.